call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 80 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Donica Tiernan, watched Ridley Scott's 1492, Conquest of Paradise, and Werner Herzog's Agiri, The Wrath of God. At the time of recording, you can find 1492 on YouTube, if you want to torture yourself. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call a Friend of Podcast. Drop us a line there for any feedback or recommendations. Peace. Yo, Ombre, what's up? Uh, well, not much. We took a week off. I was infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I don't know if you've heard of it. but No, what's that? Well, uh, I thought it was fake, but apparently it's real or some kind of facsimile of it. Oh, is this... It the, is, could, be, could be psychosomatic. I don't know. Is this this virus that the uh, Taiwanese and Tibetans collaborated on to take down <laughs> exactly Western society? Correct. That's exactly and, and the brave the brave about. Chinese have oppressed these these two various factions to try and save the world. That's what I've heard anyway. That's what I heard. That's what I heard. So yeah, I came down with a bit of the old COVID, so that unfortunately ruled us out of recording last week because I couldn't fucking bring myself to watch these two films. I will say this: one of them is good, one of them is terrible. Yes. And I, I, and I want to say, those are not opinions. <laughs> those are facts I'm stating here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I want yeah. to be clear on that. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, I mean, the bad one, which we will get into, there's so much just cynical stuff even behind the scenes and like, yeah, it's just awful. Stuff. It's round, like an orange. <laughs> it's round. It's actually been, it's been a week since I've seen either of them, but um, <laughs> there are certain things that I hate. I had seen one of them, the good one, a few different times. But uh, the Christy Columbus one, I oh, Christy Columbus, I can still like remember various parts that I felt like getting sick. I fucking hated it so much. <laughs> I hated it so much. I think it might be the worst film for me anyway that we've had to watch for the podcast. I is definitely up there. Beats uh, three what? idiots like. Oh yeah, because, are you kidding? Three idiots is a massively successful Bollywood smash hit. Well, sure, yeah, he, it's one, you know, it's one well, of the films silencer. that Steven Spielberg w- wished he directed, isn't it? That's right. It's Steven Spielberg's top five alongside Jaws and a couple of other things. <laughs> uh, oh, I, I must read that newspaper article again. It was so funny. Like, the quotes are clearly lies. I think he said uh, about The Godfather, um, nobody else could have directed this movie other than Francis Ford Coppola. What are you talking about, Steven Spielberg? Are you saying that the West Bombay Times is not the most accurate <laughs> news source? Either? I'm saying it's no no Baltimore Sun, I suppose. Fair play. What were the... Um, I can't even think of the name of it. I still got COVID-infected brain... The old Vinny Diesel joint early on. Oh, yeah, the Chronicles of Riddick. Chronicles of Riddick. Yeah, oh, I that's definitely certainly enjo- up there. I definitely enjoyed Chronicles of Riddick more than 1492. Oof. Because I there was stuff you, because there's stuff about that that was just moronic and you can laugh at it, like um, Carl Urban's hair. And um, was it in that one that Vin Diesel. Oh, yeah, it is. It's that one where Vin Diesel had a lady molest him while he was asleep because he's such a hot piece of ass. Yeah understandable that's pretty that's pretty good that, <laughs> that Vin Diesel Tandy wrote that into Newton. the movie 
Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't Tandy Newton. It was like one, like a, a bruiser lady, like who's you know one of the oh, you yeah. know guards because yeah. they're flying him to some prison, and then he appears That's unconscious, true. and she's yes. like, "I'm gonna sit on this fucker's face," <laughs> um, which is what ladies in the future are like. I'm glad Vin Diesel has such an optimistic view of how liberated ladies will be. That is true. So, 1492, Conquest of Paradise. We originally both chose this film. That's the mad thing. that I te- the yeah, time, I texted yeah. you the film. It was a, a response for the death of the composer Vangelis. Mm. The one saving grace of this film is that song. That one piece of music. Uh, the overall score is fine. But the one, the main theme, Conquest of Paradise, amazing. What, what an amazing piece of music. That's the one you have to go through around 40, 40 minutes, 45 minutes of utter shite until the boats, he gets the three boats assembled to sail to the new world. And then the music kicks in and you're like, wait a minute, this could actually, this could actually be okay. This might turn into a decent film. Yeah, I have and five um, minutes later, you're back and shit. I, I, I suppose a number of factors align as to why I heartily dislike this uh, just so much. First and foremost, I suppose, is I'm big into anything that conveys well the idea that once the world was a much bigger place, like anything at all, even something based in the 1920s and someone goes to America, if they can pull off that sense of distance well, I like that a lot. This film has none of that. Then you hear that it was made to coincide with the 500th anniversary of... uh, How much do you remember about that? How old were you at that time? You were probably way too young, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I was five. Yeah, you were five. Okay, that's the difference. Cause Do you I remember like, this being released? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing trailers for this. I don't know if I saw trailers for this or if I saw trailers for the other one that came out. Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, the John Glenn film, the one with Marlon Brando and Tom Selleck. I think it was probably 1492. I saw trailers for this at the time and I was like, that looks pretty fucking exciting. Well, you see, the thing is, it, this is a great demonstration of the fact that you you need a I don't know you need a central beating heart to your movie even if it's the even if the story is as interesting as this and this is a fucking interesting story like I mean there's not a lot is known about Christopher Columbus's origins about five different play, people claim he was from there but one thing that the books do conclude you know they very much agree on is that it was an insane thing to be doing and the only reason that Ferdinand and Isabella threw any bit of money out of, out of him because they were, they were I don't know, sort of far-seeing monarchs and they figured, well, worst that happens is he never comes back. Best that happens is we're golden. You know, it was a, it was a money gamble. Like, uh, that is kind of interesting, whereas this film does not know what it's about at all. They try to kind of go for the spreading Christianity angle in a weird way, but there's just no sort of... I'll tell you what, almost... Because, like, Aguirre, the wrath of God is not for everybody, but almost exactly what that is, because that's the other film we watched for this week, almost exactly what that is, is exactly what 1492 is missing. Yeah. There's no madness. There's no... It does not... Like, you know when they arrive and they're just there playing with the aliens? The aliens? (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Say what you really think. But hold on. I mean, there should have been a sense of that. They, they were like aliens. There should have been because that's like they, that's how people report stuff like this. By the way, I'm like I'm, it was a Freudian slip, but fair enough. It's like um, have you ever seen the New World? Yes. There's a sequence in that where the Native Americans attack this fort, 
and it literally does feel like two worlds colliding. They're like... It, like all the skinny Irish children and Colin Farrell are inside the camp, you know, um, like cooking over fires and these guys all covered in paint on warpaths moving like animals. It's insane. But then, and then we've got, instead of that, we've got Jared Derpardo playing with a bunch of native children. It's fu- It's <laughs> That's so very, lame. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's part of the problem is that Quincentenary that it was released because it released for at the time. I feel like 1992 was sort of the last acceptable time when people were on board with the whole myth of like Christopher Columbus <laughs> was a mm. good guy. He discovered the US, etc., uh, etc. Et like he discovered but America. The, blah, blah, but blah. you know what the thing is, is like there there is a very interesting movie to be to be made there because like yeah he did end up um, he did end up abusing the natives. For real, that happened, and he got completely ostracized, and people tried to write him out of history a little bit. But if you went to write a character like that, like, a little bit more realistically, like, that is really interesting. That's the film you want to see, you know what I mean? I don't think, like, it's a strange thing. Like, I guess Ridley Scott's historical epics don't really care about accuracy very much. I would, like, I would kind of... And what do we maybe, have? Not, maybe not historically accurate. Uh, maybe not historical accuracy, but certainly he later on in his career, and even actually before in his career, like a film like The Duelists, would aim mm-hmm. for more visual authenticity than you see in 1492. Like there's other stuff that, like little things. I don't know, did you spot this? But in like in the opening of the film when they're still in Spain, they have uh, turkeys, right? Huh? Have you seen that? They have the in the start of the film uh, again when someone rides up on a horse in one of the towns in Spain. They have, like, turkeys oh, God, waddling around. And I didn't notice that, but I, I certainly did. did not exist in Spain at that time. No. Or, like, there's just a little thing, like, that I noticed. There was a gate in the background, very finely <laughs> arra- <laughs> like arranged, me- like, metal sort of steel gate. And I was, like, or, like, in the background, they had all, like, a palace, and there was, like, you could clearly see there was glass on the windows. And I was like, come on, dudes. Make, like, fucking, what's it called? The Last Jewel. Like, how real does that world feel? And I know it's many years on, and he's much better. And definitely, he's made some of my favorite films ever. But this is pants. I can see why people thought it was <laughs> pants. It sucks. He kind of defended it a little bit, said people didn't get it because of the yeah, accents. Yeah, yeah. You see that, that quote from him? He said, they don't hear shit unless it's from Texas or America, right? And reflected, it's one of my favorite films. What's interesting, they didn't know how to release it in America, but in Europe it clocked 57 million. And he said that, like, he thinks it's, one, he thinks it's a great film. He said that in November last year in what? a film interview. <laughs> I, I, I worry that Ridley Scott is losing his mind or else genuinely he thinks it's he thinks it's a great film. I can't. Well, Ridley can't Scott get behind doesn't that. give a I'm fuck. Sorry. Well, yeah. It, like he's he's gotten like loud and grumpy in his recent years and he genuinely seems to not give much of a top any fuck about any of what anybody thinks. But I don't know. It's just like even before I, I, he, he made the future seem lived in in Alien. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Whereas the, like this just yeah. they are like fails on so many levels like the, the that scene where um what, a lot of people have argued before by the way that like the key to a good ridley scott film is a good script give him a good script and he'll get you your film that's and fair this script has the feeling of kind of being bullied into existence like i said it doesn't really know what it's about 
It's very cynical. It does feel like it was just made to to fit that date of the you know oh, five hundred years. I'd be sure of, of that. Yeah, discovery. There was a couple of others. There was some animated film that came out, and then the only other one that I saw in the cinema. The other of the there were four films in total. The other one was Carry On Columbus. I saw that. Carry On Columbus. I think I've mm. seen that too. Actually, another classy uh, Carry On film. I am. I have watched a, an amazing amount of carry-on films. They used to be on every Saturday. I used to watch them because <laughs> sometimes you'd see boobs, but also... Yeah, Barbara Windsor's top coming flying off. That's one of the only things I could say. I think that's my carry-on carry camping. On camping. Yeah, that's one of the only memories. But I, I love... Ju- I still... That level of camping it up for jokes, that makes me laugh. I'm a very Ooh. simple... Yeah, yeah, anything like that. <laughs> or like a brass strap going boing. Like, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? I love it. Sid James just not acting. I like yeah. that too. It's great. it's fun. It's fun. Certainly more fun than this fucking shit. Yeah. Um, so uh, yes, yeah, so it's an, it feels like an incredibly cynical film. The actors are miscast largely, in my opinion. At yes. least the leads of the film. I'd say Gerard Depardieu to cast the most French man ever to play this Italian who's you know living in Spain. I don't know. I, I, I they desperately wanted Sigourney Weaver. Ridley Scott was so on board with her to play the Queen of Spain. I mean Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, that's very poor casting. Isabella, do we? And sure now that, about that 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 that's like that's that's more than anything else in this film is a real sign of the times. The fact that he thought that was a good idea. Nobody would do that nowadays. Yeah, and apart from that, I just think there's like there's really weird cuts. There's strange slow mo in the action. Yes. There's a lot of handheld shots that I just think look bad. I think they're poorly framed. The action's really confusing a lot of the time. It's not fun. No. <laughs> it's hard to know what's going on. Why do it so many of the scenes where they're in big churches or or halls or like the ceremonial scenes are just they feel awful. They feel I, so bland. Just I kept that's the word for it. I kept losing concentration halfway yeah. through scenes. I just I, I was like, like I was like, was like it oh. COVID or? and like I, like I was per, like it was early in the evening. I had gotten my baby to bed. I was like I was like, I was thinking brilliant. All right, two and a half hour film. I'm in for this. Although no, right. I say brilliant two and a half hour film. Very soon after I realized we'd be watching this, I began to dread it. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I began to suspect that's because you read some of the reviews. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> no, because I had read reviews for this before, but like I got into the Chronicles of Riddick with the exact same attitude. I was like, the critics are probably you know just a bunch <laughs> of assholes, and I'm gonna enjoy this. And then I specifically I got thinking of the making it in 1992. And I was just thinking, oh God, like, that's, is this like the movie version of an uh, English World Cup song, you know? <laughs> the, the 90s was a bit of a rough time for Ridley Scott. I mean, okay, 1991, Thelma and Louise, that was good. Big that, hit. That's, that's fine. Yeah, it's, a, it's successful critically, commercially. 1992, he made this, did not do well. 1996 was White Squall. I haven't seen that. Never seen then, that, Then no. G.I. Jane which was Razzie nominated. 2000 was Gladiator. I remember at that Hell time, yeah. like that was a big upswing for him and people were like, he's back, folks. So well, he just yeah, had a bad 90s, largely. I, I have, I've seen Gladiator countless times mm. <laughs> at this point and still it is one that I would throw on in a second. I think it is just a blast start to finish. So much fun. It also, it kicked off, like, it, it kicked off such a new trend in filmmaking for a while, I feel. So that was 2000. When did the, like, like I, it basically, 
kickstarted swords and sandals again for a while mm. i feel like but like alexander of, and things are yeah 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 which i've never watched since the cinema but everybody like i was studying alexander at the time so i enjoyed it uh but everybody assures me it's really really rubbish apparently there's a four hour cut of this film of 1492 Oof. it's no, out there somewhere yeah i think hbo have it I do, it hasn't been released, but I, I was reading this on Reddit somewhere that there is a four-hour cut of this. I mean... Just wait. They're waiting to drop it. Like It's kind of like having some kind of nuclear warhead. I mean, if they Imagine found... threatening people with that. Are going to release a four-hour <laughs> cut of 1492? I would want to see it in like a big IMAX thing because mm. I would definitely... Like, I've always, you know, sat in... An, whenever I sit in IMAX seats, I've thought these would be great for an old nap, wouldn't they? They're very comfortable, the IMAX seats. <laughs> and I feel like if anything could send you out for a nap on them, it would totally be a four-hour cut of 1492. If that, that's the kind of thing I would do if I was traveling and for some reason like I needed to wait a few hours to check into a hotel. Yeah, sleep in a nice IMAX screening of 1492. That would be perfect. The thing is, is there, yeah. there are, like, as has been proven by uh, a film that I will suggest if I, uh, win, if I win the toss or lose the toss. Yes, if I lose the toss, that's the one. But, like, there is a way, there's a means of storytelling to tell stories like this. And key among them is you need, like if it's a big adventure film, right? You need to get a few different characters on the boil. Do you know what I mean? What's an example? Uh, one we watched for this uh, podcast, The Bounty, for example. Mm. You get different d- disparate That's such a much better film. Oh, it's so we, much better. We've watched like a few films like that that are not telling the same story, but are like Telling similar stories, The Bounty, uh, Lost City of Zed, mm. Embrace of the Serpent, to a certain extent. I mean, they're telling yeah, yeah. similar-ish stories, and they're all infinitely better than this. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's, it's like that's another reason I was so fucking bummed out by it, because it's it's with, done right, this is a type of film mm. that really, really yeah. sucks me same, in. Same, same. Yeah, god damn the lot. Like, but yeah, once again, like even Lost City is you get a few different characters on the boil. You know, you got his family back yeah. home. Like, the only person we're pushed to give a fuck about in this is Christopher Columbus, and yeah. that's a that's a lot of weight for uh, one actor for two and a half hours. I mean, his his best mate that he travels with, or like his the the, the guy who I think commissioned the boats, maybe is um, Checky Cario. I didn't even recognize mm. him at all playing Pinzon. Like, I have no concept of him. <laughs> I didn't recognize the actor at all, which is weird. Who is it? Checky Cario. What the... F- you mean... Yeah. What's his name yeah. from The Missing? Yeah. Oh, what's Baptiste. the name of that? Baptiste. Baptiste, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Baptiste is in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's young. He just, you don't recognize... He doesn't ah, look like enough. himself at all. But yeah, like, that character did not care about him at all. Well, like, that's the thing. There's just so little work in, in, in all the characters. And, like, they do try to give... Like, they try to, I don't know give something to old Christy Columbus himself, but it it falls fairly flat. Now, I don't know, would it, is it just because the kind of, th- what they're, I suppose the story that they want, that they're trying to give him is be a, kind of a Christian businessman type of thing or something? Like his motivation. Well, that he wasn't going to try to murder mm. the inhabitants of the new world. He was just there to, to, to make connections, but I mean, to still, do some networking, they depict that they depict him sympathetically in those scenes. I found sure it wasn't Which, his fault. It's not him cutting off the hand of workers, although by other accounts it was. Yeah, I like. 
I, I, I like I suppose you might be right. Nineteen ninety two is maybe the last straw for this kind of stuff. The last time you could have. I think told. that is. I think that's what it is because this is like pre-internet. It's just before the internet sort of took off. I remember really starting to use the internet like nineteen ninety four, probably. And so this just that period just before the free sharing of information and more access to the. To, to records of the past, of compiling everything in one place. So I think it was still that time where if you had wanted to look something up, it was like, well, you better know where the library is. Yeah. But nowadays, I mean, I've gone down huge Wikipedia holes, just out like rabbit holes off of this. I've been reading about the Spanish black legend. What's that? That is the big anti-Catholic theory that a lot of Spain's exploits in the in the new world were written up very negatively by evil protestants so it's like <laughs> i like the, that <laughs> yeah yeah I, I knew you would so the the the, the uh english speaking or like northern european countries protestant countries their exploits in the new world were 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 more positive uh, were slightly uh less murderous whereas the uh, spanish catholics are are painted as these kind of barbaric people who are who are led by the church and uh yeah so there's there's huge there's there's a lot about this stretching back to like the mid-19th century maybe even further well that's the the, anti-catholic stuff that's this like nobody remembers the um the Spanish Empire fondly, which is a strange sentence, I know, but the fact is some a lot of people do remember the British Empire fondly. Certain middle classes in African countries and a lot of people in India. But, it, 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 you know, that's down completely to the absolute brutality of it. Um, or it, the evil Protestants. Or the evil Protestants, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Starting to set up their lies. I do like that, yeah. The other thing I, I, I started reading about a guy called Sinan Rice... You ever okay. heard of him? No. He's also known as the Great Jew. He was a, a pirate of the <laughs> Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. I think someone Pi- should make a film about it. A him. Jewish pirate from the yeah. Ottoman Empire. Yeah. It's fucking. It's, there's so much. And that was all thanks to watching this film. I just went down this crazy rabbit hole, and then I I found myself on a page called Jewish Pirates. It was great. Wow. There's, there's there's some mad stuff. There's some mad history out there. That's the story that they should be telling. Fuck Christopher Columbus. Sinan Rice. He's the guy. But, right, here's the thing. Wouldn't you like... Because the thing is, now at the moment, we're so steeped in wokeness that the, like, the only way that they would make a f- film about Christopher Columbus is uh, it was, was from the perspective of the natives and he yeah. was just a mad lunatic with a whip. Which, again, I mean, that sounds fun. I wouldn't mind watching that. But, like, I would, like, to the depth that... Right, fair enough, it's Terence Malick. But to the depth that Terence Malick achieves, like, a, a real beautiful, interesting character study with uh, the New World, you, you know, I'd like to see something like that for the Christopher Columbus story. I'd like to see... For, like for Also, right? You know what's a major ball dropped? Like, the fucking voyage is, like, ten minutes long. Yeah, and that was the only good part. As soon as the voyage ended, I was like, all right. Yeah, but like, I mean, that's what you want. Like, because there's so many crazy stories from that. There was a there was a mutiny. They ended up in the Sargasso Sea and they thought it was a monster. Like, all this mad stuff that you like. Oh, that's right. They got stuck, like, floating in the doldrums. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, that could be, like, filmed right, that kind of stuff can can be really scary. Like, you know, and terrifying. Like, like. There's a a, sh- a show that came out on Amazon a few years ago. I was in it actually. 
me, <laughs> the, the son of uh, Richard Harris. I was. Oh, in right. It. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it called? The it's Expanse? Called, uh, uh, no, it's called The Terror. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I still haven't finished even season one. I'm about halfway through. Well, I just started three I, years ago. What I really progress. liked about that is you, despite the fact that it was no doubt made in a studio or whatever, um, not like the North Water, which they actually went very far north to shoot that. Uh, but they really did achieve this sort of scary sense of just in the middle of nowhere. Nothingness. And yeah, yeah. Just, this is it's like trapped in a fucking iceberg. If you go to the Arctic back in the day, you, you it's like going to the moon. Like, you know, how are you what are you go, How are you going to get back? And there's just there's just none of that, and I think we well, you think get a sense of that in uh, Wrath of God, definitely. Oh, for sure. I think that's all Wrath of God is almost yeah. is just madness in the jungle, essentially. Anything interesting to say about any of these boyos in this? Yeah, I guess. Well, okay, Gerard Depardieu is probably the main guy. He's uh, a very controversial figure, as we'll we'll get into now. I just feel like he's horribly miscast. He can't carry this film at all, which is a shame because, like, Ridley Scott apparently signed on to the film with that as that was like a specific sticking point. Was he he wanted? That's who he wanted. He's like, I'll do if you can get Gerard Depardieu, I'll do the film. I would imagine Gerard Depardieu would have been a hot property in nineteen. He really, he was. He certainly was. I mean, all that stuff like Green Card. He's he done in the eighties things like Jean de Florent and his all his big French roles. He was just transitioning. He this was his kind of Hollywood moment in mm. the early nineties. I remember like ninety four was like my father, the hero. He's still doing things like that. So yeah, this was like this was he was a really hot property at the time, but just such a weird, weird choice. Also, accents are a big problem in this film because you've got some yeah, people no are homogeny. doing char- yeah, some people are doing characters. Michael Wincott is doing like full kind of Spanish baddie, which I enjoy. Um, yes, I Sigourney agree. Weaver I did, I did is doing Sigourney him. Weaver. Yeah. So ridiculous. Like I, I, very I jarring. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah, don't like it. I, I don't like that. Like Not when good. she pulls back the curtain and reveals herself, it's kind of Hello, like. Hello. Oh, I didn't me. know. I didn't know Sigourney Weaver was alive in 1492 yeah. and ruling Spain. She was. So anyway, Gerard Depardieu uh, grew up in poverty, basically illiterate as a kid. Spent most of his time on the streets as a petty criminal smuggler. He was a bodyguard for prostitutes who whose customers were. American GIs post World War Two, and his family called him Pitard uh, because of his incessant farting. <laughs> there you go. I think that's it's like a type of firework, isn't it? It's like that explosion or something. So here we go. This is this is the real Jared. He he came up hard. He came up rough, rough, rough. So in a 1978 interview, Depardieu reportedly confirmed a story that he first participated in a rape when he was nine years old. And that he had participated in more rapes since then. He reportedly stated there were too many rapes to count. There was nothing. Yeah. He was involved in. I think these were gang rapes. There were too many rapes to count. There was nothing wrong with it. The girls wanted to be raped. I mean, there's no such thing as rape. It's only a matter of a girl putting herself in a situation where she wants to be. Good God. There's when not really, it, there's nothing you can really say to that. This is, I mean, he, this was in 1978, this interview. He, since then, in various interviews, he's tried to clarify. And, <laughs> Don't, and, just, just, just let it die. Just, 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 let's just not focus on that. But in, uh, in August 2018, Depardieu was accused of sexual assault and rape by a 22-year-old actress and dancer. And as of now, the case is still under investigation. Oh, I did not know any of this. 
Yeah, well, but he's uh, so now uh, Jared Depardieu is a big pal of uh, Vladimir Putin. He was granted Russian citizenship in 2013, and he also converted to Eastern Orthodoxy in 2020. But he's also been granted citizenship of the UAE earlier this year. He's got big Steven Seagal vibes. Yeah, those aren't good citizenships to be granted. So yeah, fairly controversial figure. We've talked about Jared Depardieu before because his son died. Do you remember we talked about his son? He lost a leg, and then I think he died of pneumonia or something in his thirties. Yeah, that that is ringing a bell. He was, was in Paula X, the Leos Carax film. Ah, yes. So it came up when we were watching uh, Lovers on the Bridge. Yes, and what was the uh, shit reason that that movie is called Paula X again? It's an anagram or some shit. I, I don't know. Remember. No, Leos Carax is an anagram. There's some, there's some stupid but Paul reason. Paul X is something. It's the 10th iteration of a poem or something. I remember something like that. Anyway. Whatever. Uh, okay, so let's fire through some of the other people. Armando Sante is Gabriel Sanchez, Columbus's arch rival in Castile. I felt he was miscast as well. He's got a good face for the film. Mm. He's got some solid facial hair. The early 90s, it felt like he was going to be a thing. He was in Judge Dredd, Hoffa, Fatal Instinct, that spoof of Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. Do you ever watch that? No, I've never seen, even heard of that. Yeah, that was the early 90s moment there where they were doing stuff like that, like hot shots, Zucker type things that were, yeah. you know. Well, I love hot shots, but I've it. never heard of that. Fatal, Fatal Instinct, yeah, it's fairly bad. Pretty bad. Anyway, he felt like he was going to be a guy in the early 90s, faded away a bit. Wasn't a fan of him in this, but he was in uh, a TV show you enjoy, The Deuce. Was he? Apparently so. No idea who he played, but he's in that. Which fella? I have no idea. What, what do you mean? Which, who is he in The Deuce? I don't know. In this, yeah. he's the art. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know. You have to look it up. Ah, fair enough. He plays uh, Johnny Deuce. Ah, the main character. <laughs> the main character, yeah. He's like an undercover private eye. He's so deeply uh, buried in the role. Yeah. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver, blah, 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 miscast. To remember her name is Susan Weaver. Do you remember where her, her name comes from, Sigourney? I do not. It's from a character in The Great Gatsby. We've, we talked about her on uh, the Living Dangerously. What's it called? The yes, Year, Year of, of Living, Living Dangerously. Dangerously. Living Another Vangela score, an odd Vangela yeah. score. Uh, okay, next up is a legend, Fernando Rey as Antonio de Marchena. Fernando Rey, folks. Fernando, he is a Rey. He's a legend, born in... A Coruña in 1917, he was studying architecture at a university, but uh, the, the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War stopped his studies and he ended up becoming an actor instead. And he went on to work He's frequently great, yeah. with Luis Buñuel. And, and uh, uh, William Friedkin. We, yeah, Friedkin is what most people, certainly what I know him from is as uh, yeah, the, he's bad, the, frog. the baddie, the frog from The French Connection. One of the, one of the greatest films of all time. For so real, yeah. I watch, it, I watch it at least once a year. I have watched it once this year. He also did a ton of uh, Spanish voice dubbing for the uh, for the uh, Spanish market. Mm. And what was he in for Louis Bunuel? Anything I'd have seen? I can't remember the specifics, but it was like earlier stuff. Can't remember. Maybe not. I've only seen that one, um, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois. I've watched very, very low, very few of his films. It's Next up is film. Michael Winkett. Hell yeah. Legend. Definitely. Looks like John Spillane, enemy of the show. That too. Adrian de Mojica, or as uh, some people call him that, and some and uh, Jared Depardieu calls him Moxica. In Moxica. Well, why did they not even agree on the pronunciation of someone's name? Or is it supposed <laughs> that's to be like... a very good question. Like that, as in, that's, I hate when that happens. I've seen that happen in TV shows frequently, with especially with Asians, Asian character names, and they're just like, fuck it, say it how you want. Like, don't worry about it. 
you know what I reckon? I see. I formed a theory as I was watching this film, and it, like it again relates to you with just the like so much pants stuff happening in it, right? And even with Ridley Scott, because like I said, Ridley Scott doesn't give a fuck really anymore. I doubt Ridley Scott would ever shit on one of his films. Number one, fair play. Number two, I think like he was in advertising for years. If anybody knows how the game works, it's Ridley Scott. So, so I reckon this he must have gotten a big fat paycheck for this. Is what I think. Respect. Respect. Because it's just, it is kind of it, it, like it's shit. Yes, but it also it feel has the feeling of being bullied into existence. Like yeah. it was, it, there was, no, there's no finesse to it, and like that's just one example of it. You know, if you pronounce the name correctly, or or this at least homo- like you yeah, exactly. Yeah, but just some sort of uniformity among characters would be nice. Anyway, Michael Wincott, legend as well, guy of Gisborne from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Why a spoon? He was also in The Crow. He's a great baddie. He was the great early 90s baddie because of his, yeah. his gravelly voice. He's got a great face. And he's fallen out a little bit, but he's going to be back. He's back in a big role. He'll be seen soon in Jordan Peele's upcoming film, Nope. He's oh, really? Yeah, he's got one of the leading roles. Ah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. How good is that? Jordan Peele said, let's go and get that guy with the, the face and the voice. I remember the last thing I remember seeing him in proper was that um, he plays Ed Gein in um, oh, the, yeah. the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Yeah, I, I, I read that. I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's not in it long, but I just remember, like, I, I, uh, you know, he's, he does have a very memorable face. He's got a serial killer's face. That's what you'd want. Then Bap- Baptiste. Baptiste is up next. Checky Cario. He's, uh, he's actually half Greek, half, half Turkish. He was born in Istanbul. He moved to France as a as a child. The the uh, spelling of his name is a sort of a way for French people to pronounce it phonetically because it's, it's actually like it's spelled like D J A K Y oh. in uh, Turkish or whatever. But so it's in French, it's T C H E K Y. Chicky. He moved to Paris as a kid. Uh, yeah, I did not recognize him at all. He's a great actor. Been around, been around the block. He is, yeah, yeah. He's. Terrific actor. Anybody who can, anybody can, who can, I think this is the, this is one of the gold standards for actors. Anybody who can successfully carry a, a TV detective. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's how you know he's good. Next up is Frank Langella as Luis de Santangel. Frank Another Langella, legend. yes. There's so, there's so many Indeed, fucking yeah. legends. Some this cast. Is, this is Skeletor. Skeletor from Masters of the Universe. How is that not, that's one of the greats of all time. He's got one Oscar nomination for Frost Nixon. Also, uh, Daddy, Ricardo Daddy, Daddy, Daddy LaBeouf from uh, Transformers is in it, isn't he? Who? Uh, Shia LaBeouf's dad from Transformers. He's like the captain. W- one of the captains. Oh, never, what, hold on, I'm going to... I have the page here somewhere. <clears throat> Kevin Dunn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Kevin Dunn is in it as well. His sister, Nora Dunn, was on SNL for five years. I skipped him out. But yeah, Kevin <laughs> Dunn's been in a bunch of stuff. <laughs> you just reminded me of... Uh, 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 there's a... A very good Norm Macdonald story where Willie Nelson was put, was playing the music and Norm's a big country guy, so he was super excited to meet him, but he didn't want to be rude. And uh, Nora, Nora Dunn was also beside him, so he had, to introduce her, uh, he had to introduce her. And the way he finishes off the story and goes, and let me tell you one thing, man. When you say Nora, it is really difficult not to say Efron immediately afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, Willie Nelson, uh, so sometimes I listen to his granddaughter's podcast. It's called uh, Music Grandfather. Granddaughter. Granddaughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her name is Raylan. Raylan Nelson. What's the podcast about? 
It's uh, it's called Music is Funny because she's uh, she's a musician, but she also does comedy sometimes. She just interviews stand-up comedians about music, basically, and about comedy, about their exposure to music and comedy. Because there's a lot of crossover in those two in those two worlds. So yes, I listen indeed. to that from time to time. It's not too bad. It's got some pretty good guests, Nick DiPaolo, a bunch of other people. Hmm. Yeah, check it out. Anyways, back to Frank Langella. He was fired from Mike Flanagan's Fall of the House of Usher which he's making for Netflix. Fired for no. misconduct on set. Yeah, he was fired. This was about two months ago. He was replaced by, uh, God, what's his name? The guy, I could, because Mike Flanagan always uses the same players. He was replaced by uh, Gerald from Gerald's Game. Can't think of his name. You know the guy. No, right, yeah. He was a captain on one of the Star Treks. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's his name again? His name... Oh, yeah, Bruce Greenwood, I think. Yes. the place. So yeah, Frank Langella, he was doing uh, a sex scene with uh, a lady, a young wife, and um, he put his hand on her knee. But this we talked about this before in another, I can't remember which episode we were perhaps talking about a film with controversial sex scenes, but he did something that the intimacy coordinator had not gone over with him or with the lady playing his wife. Huh. Specifically touching her knee. He also made some off-color joke. And I think he was quite touchy-feely and on set. He's also 84 years old. He is 84 years old. So I respect yes. it. So, yeah, he put out a comment. He put I would out, like, like to say I do not respect saying, it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. He put, well, he put out a comment saying, like, you crazy. You're crazy. But uh, anyway, he's gone. He got shit canned off of that. You might not see too much of Frank Frank Langella these days, but he's also a very old man. Mm. It's weird though because I thought I I, w- I was sure um, Flanagan was doing something else. Well, yeah, Flanagan's doing about a million things, but the oh, thing right, he's currently enough. making right now is Fall of the House of Usher. He's also uh, Midnight Club should be coming out later this year, but that's been in the that's can the one for a while. That's been in the can for a while. Oh, okay. That's going to be released around October, probably, because that's when most Flanagan's things usually come out around Halloween. Very excited. Yes, that should be good. That's about a group of kids who are all, I think, terminally ill or something, telling each other stories. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that should be some more good. But I think something that happens on a Mike Flanagan set, I, I trust his actors and I trust him. So mm. I think Frank Langella probably a big was a dirty old man yeah yeah big dirty old man okay next up is one of my favorite actors mark margolis ah Francisco yes de Bobadilla. that's Bobadilla. right ding ding hector salamanca himself one of the greats he's a jewish guy from philly he moved to new york and studied under stella adler when he was when he was 19 years old he's just he's been he's just yeah he's this philly jewish guy who's been working playing a lot of Spanish characters, which is very impressive mm. as far as I'm concerned. He's appeared in six Darren Aronofsky films. That's probably where I first sort of became aware of him, apart from the, his role in Scarface, which is he has quite an yeah, important he role plays the, the assassin guy who wants yeah. to blow up the car outside the UN. The Shadow. Um, That's what yeah. they call him. In that. Right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he's in like Requiem for a Dream, Pie. He's in six. He's in, he's, yeah, in Pi, he's like one of the Jewish uh, Kabbalah dudes, isn't Kabbalah he? Kabbalah guys, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the, in the wrestler, he's, uh, oh, Can't who is remember. he? Can't remember. No, neither can I, fuck. But yeah, most importantly, he's Hector Salamanca. He's yes, also absolutely. in uh, Bear Call Saul. He's still alive. He's in his early 80s. He's not touching anyone's knees, as far as I'm aware. 
No. He's just okay, delivering there's, the there's goods. There's too many people in this. I mean, yeah, the guy that. who plays Imhotep from the Mummy films, he's in it. He's also in Bosch as well. Arnold oh, I didn't recognize him. Yeah, I, re- Stephen, I recognized him in Boss. In Bosch. Stephen Waddington, who've talked about before, he plays one of Christopher Columbus's brothers. I talked about him because he played a character in un, in the Uncharted film called The Scotsman, which is one of the most embarrassing portrayals of a Scottish person I've seen ever. <laughs> so I did want to. Yeah, I recall that now. But there he's, is, not, he's not Scottish, right? No, he's English. But there's there's one actor who ties the two films that we watched together, and that's Jack Taylor, who played Davy Cunha. Davy Cunha. I have no idea who the character is, but. He was a he was an actor in the seventies in uh, Jesus Franco exploitation films, including Count Dracula in nineteen seventy, which starred uh, Christopher Lee and Klaus Kinski. Ah, uh, right. So that's the yeah. link. That is the link. I think this guy Jack Taylor might he's he's in his eighties as well. I think he might live in Barcelona actually, because one of the last films he was in was Grand Piano in twenty thirteen, which has got which has got some people we know in it. Really. Well, I don't know. Like, no, no. I'm sure you must have met some of them. Like, Barcelona types, like Rachel Arieff. Remember her? Yes, I do. Yeah, she's in it. Uh, ben Nathan Serio. He used to come to comedy gigs in Barcelona. He's a friend of Dan's. He's in it. All these Barcelona actor types. So anyway, Jack Taylor connects the two films. Nice. And uh, are we going to talk about what happens in the damn Fucking film? Christopher Columbus goes to the new world. All right, hold on. I'm going to see how... I'm going to see how quickly I can sum this up just from direct memory. Uh, Stop me if anything is significant. Uh, Christopher Columbus is sure the world is round and wants to get nice spices. So he goes to the queen and, uh, I don't know, he charms her somehow. They don't do the egg thing like the story. But uh, anyway, she gives him the money and uh, he gets three ships, the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria for all you pub quiz fans. And uh, he uh, lies to them and tells them that the, it'll be uh, shorter than it is. They're at sea for quite a bit, but then he sees a does mosquito. Does he lie to them or does he just not know? Is he, well, he doesn't know, purposefully misleading? No, no, because he doesn't know how long it'll take. And he, plus he thinks they'll just go to Indians. Uh, they'll just go to India. Oh, sidebar, the Louis C.K. joke where he says, um, <laughs> we must have known after like five seconds that they weren't actually Indians. And we still call them that. It's just like, hey, uh, this is India, right? No, no, no. But you're Indians, right? No, no, no. It's a totally other place. Ah, you're Indians. You can do what you want if you win history. This is it. Uh, Yeah, and then at first they're great mates with them. They figure out like they're back in the Garden of Eden. Um, and then they leave a bunch of uh, they leave a bunch of stuff there, and um, Columbus goes back. Oh, there is the Bahamas, I believe, um, San Salvador. And then he comes back with a bunch of ships, but all the men that he left behind have been killed. And then when they like they confront them, they say that another tribe did it. Uh, Columbus chooses to believe them, which is an odd choice. But uh, our boy, our boy, what's his name again? Michael Wincott. Michael Wick- Wincott plays Mojica or Moxica. I think we should call him Moxica. Moxica I have respect yeah, for Jared. Because he's got Moxie. He's got Moxie. Yeah, he does. He's, he's got spunk and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, he, um, but he says, no, nah, these damn natives. I don't have, trust these guys. Yeah, yeah. They, um, they killed our boys. Uh, then they build a, a wee town and there's, there's like a church and stuff. Raising then, the church bells actually not too bad. I didn't mind that scene. I was kind of on board for that. But that's, again, it's like it's the score. 
You're like yeah. you play you play the, like uh, this Vangelis score that just it, it, it's it's so inspirational that if you just put some decent imagery behind that, you're like this is not too bad. Yeah, yeah, it can be sustained for a while, but when you turn off that soundtrack, you got problems again. Well, after the church bell, then uh, we jump we jump a wee bit forward and four years uh, or something. And uh, Moxie's cutting off lads' hands for um, for not finding gold because they're looking for gold. And then all the natives just bugger off, and uh, Columbus starts to get worried. And then he, yeah, when he gets to his house, his like island house, Moxie has burnt it, and they get uh, they get into like a big fight. There's a, a huge fight going on between the natives. Oh, that's so badly shot. Yeah, it's horrendous. There's one... Isn't it? Do you remember that one scene where one of the native guys runs towards Christopher Columbus and it's in slow-mo and they are painting him as like a kind of monster or alien, this native chief, but it just looks awful. What was the decision behind it? The sound design is terrible. It's stuff like that that makes me think that uh, Ridley Scott is probably fully aware of how bad this is. Yeah, considering the rest of his work. Exactly. I don't know. It's so weird. It's a very, very strange bit. So, yeah, so there's a big a fight kind of breaks out. Eventually, Christopher Columbus's group managed to get Moxica. They capture him. Um, I think the real Moxica was maybe executed in, in real life, but in this film... Instead, he decides to be much more badass and jump off of a cliff to kill himself. Nice. Respect. He's the be- he for me he was the best character. Uh, He's Michael the guy Winkard. I would have fo- Yeah, that's the yeah, only one I, I would have fo- I, I would have I would have followed him to the ends of the earth. Yeah, I'm not following this big French idiot. Um there's one thing that they say in the postscript which is that Amerigo Vespucci was like... Yeah, they really tried to make a big deal of that as well, to be like, hey, Columbus, you didn't discover the mainland. It was Vespucci, so... Yeah, yeah. but, like, that's kind of horseshit as well. Like, that... Because I I did some digging on that, and, like, historically, it was never quite seen like that. Like, he got an American name for him because he did the job of mapping it, like, which was, like... It was, it was something along those lines. I haven't done that much research into it, but I'm fairly sure that they kind of big that up at the end of the movie to give, you know, Columbus a tragic end. But he also, I think his ending was positive for what it was in terms of like, he's, you know, the other guys around him going like, you know, say what you want, but the only, if the only reason anyone's going to remember us is because of him. And there his, you know, they, they did sort of pay some lip service to his, contribution to discovery oh yeah for sure i mean the film is on his side like but then it ends with him sitting in a chair talking to his son saying i remember the end yeah i I think the hardest the the worst parts of the film or some of the worst parts of the film apart from the 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 whole like it's round like an orange the uh, the worst parts are (laughs) that's pretty bad uh, anything that they write on screen at the start and the end Mm. it'd be better to have no kind of written nothing no 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 lead in and no script at the end just show us some events and then we'll be done with it and 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 don't make it as though you're trying to present some historical document and then it's fine i think that was again was just a problem of being tied into this 500 year anniversary i think everybody's better off just watching the columbus day episode of, of sopranos solid this film is on youtube 
I will, I'll mention that in the intro probably <laughs> if anyone wants to torture themselves. I can't believe, I don't feel, I feel like no one, has anyone ever seen this? I've never met anybody who's seen off. this. I've never discussed this with anyone. And I never will again, yeah, unless to say it's really shit. Again. Now I'll tell you, for, for a man with a fuzzy head, I mean, a giri is quite a trip for you, it must have been. It took f- me a long time to get the, it took me a long time to get this watched because of COVID. I just it's so slow paced that my brain just couldn't take it. I had to I had to switch it off. Yeah, it's an intense ass movie and in an odd like cuz the thing is, I mean, like I said, I think one of the key things is that is missing from 1492 is almost exactly what Agira is. It's just I mean, to to begin with, the opening shots of this film are incredible that somebody got that footage. Just absolutely incredible. Otherworldly stuff like that. Like if you're going to make a movie about people, you know, going, going to the new world when it was the new world, you need to get scope like Werner Herzog does in this film and just... And it's all, it's mostly just like, I mean, there's fairly, there's a lot of amazing stuff on the river as well in the second half. But like the amount that sinks into you in just those opening shots alone with the men making their way down the mountains. And you see this shot of a, a far, like a mountain on like a, another side of a valley. And then it zooms sort of in and you see a line of soldiers going down and then back out. And you yeah. see them in the foreground and you realize it's the same line of guys. That's fairly incredible. You're talking yeah, you- about a film here that cost a fraction of the budget of 1492, and it was released 20 years earlier, and it's so much more authentic. You can just feel, this. obviously because they went to these places, they shot in Machu yeah. Picchu, the Nanai River, and Peru, in, in, uh, around in, in sort of late 1971, early 1972. They shot everything chronologically. It cost $370,000. Jesus a third of which was Klaus Kinski's salary. To nice. put that into perspective like that. in the time period, Last Tango in Paris, the films that came out the same year, Last Tango in Paris cost $1 million. Deliverance cost $2 million. Sleuth cost $3.5 million. And Michael Winner's The Mechanic cost $10 million. Wow. I mean, and so, yeah, Deliverance is considered to be have been made relatively on the fly. Yeah. And so you've got this, the, the, the crew on this film consisted of eight people and they were sailing down the river on the rafts. I mean, it's just, it's absolute <laughs> insanity. It is insanity. I went through a real Herzog phase. I've like, I, like I've seen most of his, certainly most of his um, early filmography. I think I, start, I stopped watching just every single one after I watched his film Heart of Glass where he hypnotized all the actors and I decided maybe I'll, maybe I'll look up if this film isn't weird and shit beforehand. Personally, after having seen like many, many of his things, I, genu- I do prefer his documentaries. I think he's, he mm. makes some incredible documentaries. But this Fitzcarraldo film called, till I get his filmography up actually here. Agira, The Enigma of Caspar Hauser is another good, uh, very good one. Estrosek, Fitzcarraldo, I like all of those. But then you get to like, like, oh yeah, well, also I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Uh, yes, Nascafaratu is very good too. His one. I'm a big fan of uh, his Bad Lieutenant movie. Oh yeah. Uh, I just think that's and just tremendous fun. Um, but for me, 
it's Grizzly Man. I think just I think that's just an incredible, incredible film. No one should ever watch this. No one should ever listen to this. Tape. Have you? But I also saw like a weird, scary film of his called Even Dwarfs Started Small. Have you ever seen that? No, I've watched very little because we talked about. Herzog, the only other Herzog film we've talked about on the podcast was way back near the start with Little Dieter. Oh, yeah, Little Dieter, uh, yeah, which was great. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was a good film. I must tell you, though, quickly, before we get get in, (laughs) just so you know, nobody needs to watch Even Dwarf Started Small, because I'm going to break it down for you right now. It's this fucking bizarre film where it begins, and it's like on a farm, and all the farm workers are having... uh, a sort of a mutiny or rebellion against the farmer, and they're all midgets, right? So most of the they're film filming is, midgets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they tie the farmer and his wife, also midgets, to their beds, and they walk around the place and torture each other. There's this very famous bit of like a one chicken pecking another chicken on the ground, pecking him to death, and but it's mostly just midgets going around the place destroying stuff, and then this car pulls up in the distance. And this is the this is the the crucial action of the film, and you're about an hour and twenty minutes in at this point, and it's just madness. It's like it's so weird that it's scary to watch because you're just thinking, I can't believe somebody did this. This is so strange. And then this car pulls up, and they're like, Oh no no no, we're gonna get caught, we're gonna get caught. So they go out to the car, they figure like you know they'll get rid of her, and it's just this woman who's asking for directions. Woman gets out of the car, she's also a midget, so. <laughs> kind of the weird thesis of the movie is you're just in a world where everyone's a midget. That sounds like Men. What do you the mean? film. That new film that's coming out, the uh, Alex Garland oh, yeah, film yeah, yeah, where yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. is that's Rory right. Kinnear. It's like that, but with midgets. Exactly. They're filming midgets. Mm. But yeah, I, I suppose I, was, I remember I was like, I was when I was in university, I was talking to this guy who was worked as a cinematographer, and he was a huge Werner Herzog fan. So I started digging into them in the college movie library, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, quite got off on loads of it. But this this was the one that of all the like of all the Herzog madness, people will generally go to Fitzcarraldo. And I read a book about the making of Fitzcarraldo, and it is really interesting, The Burden of Dreams. But uh, like for me. The perfect Herzog double bill to, for this kind of stuff in his career would be to watch Agira and then watch his documentary about him, his relationship with Kinski. It's called My yeah, Best that, Fiend. My, my, yeah, My Best Fiend. Which I is was fantastic. trying to get a hold of it. Instead, I read a little bit of Klaus Kinski's uh, autobiography. Oh, which Herzog helped him write, apparently. Yeah, and it is. it reads like it was written by Sick Boy. It's one of the most sexually graphic things I've ever read. I haven't read much of it. I just read bits of it. The opening of My Best Fiend features Kinski when he was doing this tour where he was... Oh, is that the way when he was Jesus? Yes! (laughs) I read a bit about that. it's, It's insane. And he's just like insulting the crowd and a guy gets up on stage. He's like... He was a full-on mentalist. Like he went for like, a period living in Vienna, I think, where he he reinvented himself doing like monologues on stage. And it's like I mean, that you just have to because the other film I mentioned of uh, um, no, um, the Enigma of Casper Hauser. So Casper mm. Hauser was this um, boy that was just found one time. Like, well, no, it wasn't a boy. He was a man. He was found, and he had just been basically left. He couldn't speak or write or do any like a feral. Uh, 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 is that what they call it? A feral child. Feral. Yeah. Feral, feral. child. Yeah, yeah. But he Little had grown feral. into an adult, 
and it, it was a true story of something that happened in Germany. And then he kind of got ingratiated into this village. And then, yeah, then people, so, then some random stranger, nobody knows who, stabbed him to death. And the film is kind of his story. Anyway, he found this homeless musician fella called Bruno something or other to like to play the part. And clearly, that's the thing is like, you know, Herzog just wants to work with the person who'll, you know, be what he sees in his head. So then when he's, you know, looking to get a conquistador, I mean, look no further than Klaus Kinski's mad head, quite frankly. And I mean, it's al- it's strange because almost everybody else in the film just almost looks, looks like... a bit yeah, Spanish. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, no, also, they're just, they look like blokes from the 70s or something, you yeah. know? He a lot of them. A mad, a mad, mad head. But he's also, he's got this like Germanic, Northern European head. He's 100% not Spanish, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Sure, the film's in German. Yeah, and that's something that you get over pretty quickly as well. Mm. It's weird that they just used to just every movie was dubbed back in the day, and that was this it. Was, this was supposed to be dubbed into English, but the guy who was responsible for that, who had the money for it, ran off mm. and took the cash. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, Klaus Kinski wanted too much money for the German dub, so some other actor does his part. Really? Yeah, it's not even Klaus Kinski. Good God. <laughs> so what did you make of this one anyway? I've rattled on enough. I thought it was great. I really, uh, uh, it's it's hard going um, because it's extremely intense, but it's one of those things and we've discussed this at length on, on various other episodes talking about sorcerers, one that comes to mind. Mm. But just, even though this is like a period film, which is obviously set in the 16th century, but even just seeing this world in 1972, what this 19, you know, what this looked yeah, like yeah, in yeah. 1972, it's just, it's a, an amazing slice of life type thing where you're like, you know, being able to experience that, the, the insanity of taking a fucking horse on a, on a wooden like raft and then getting hold of something like 200 captured. They captured something like 200 monkeys from the rainforest. Oh, for the, the end the guy, scene. Yeah. And the guys who captured them, sold them off. They were going to go to the U S and Herzog had to go to the airport to stop them and said, he took them off the plane and said, Hey, I need to give them their shots. And then he drove back to the film set with them. <laughs> and then after they finished shooting, he let them go into the uh, jungle again. But like, I mean, it's just, it's absolute insanity. I think, you can see the effect that this had on on films that followed afterwards. Basically, all the films we've mentioned earlier, anything that was, yeah, anything that's telling a similar kind of story, you can see that this affected it. Francis well, apparently Ford this Coppola was big on um, on Sorcerer well. and Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Both uh, took heavily from this, and actually, um, Werner Herzog was like living with Francis Ford Coppola for much of the seventies. Did you know that? No. Yeah, he was just living in his um, like artist retreat house type place in um in san francisco he like like the the book about the making of fitzcarraldo uh, Con- conquest burden or conquest of dreams i can't remember no conquest of the useless that's what it's called um it's actually just diaries from his time making the film and like he c- gets the initial dream and writes the whole thing in coppola's house nice yeah and also the soundtrack for this turned coppola onto the japanese dude he used in uh, apocalypse now the soundtrack for this is by a German band called, I can't remember their name. I listened to a bit of it. I, I mean, I, it's one of those things. It's it's certainly good good background music to have Yeah, it's on. good in the movie. Yeah, it works in the film. 
definitely. Was it on this set that there was like there was some lunacy with um, Kinski on this set, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Yeah. There? So Kinski, there was a group of guys playing cards. I think in uh, some of the crew members were playing cards on on a in a in a little hut, mm-hmm. and Kinski took his gun and fired like three shots, and he he shot the tip of one crew member's finger off. That oh, was one and of then the Herzog threatened him with a gun, Herzog, didn't he? Yeah, Kinski at one point just got fed up and said, I want to leave set. And Herzog said, if you leave, I'm going to shoot you and then I'm going to shoot myself. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's this sort of stuff that attracted me to the whole like Herzog mythos. <clears throat> I could see that. And during one scene in a native village, uh, Klaus Kinski hit a crewman over the head with his sword. And if not for his helmet, the man would have been killed. That's another Oh, one. yeah. And I think that remains in the movie, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I, did, but, I didn't catch the exact shot, but yeah. But there's certain, like, there's certainly. You remember when they get the cannon stuck, and he's just beating all the boys with his sword, <laughs> and it's like he's full on beating them, like you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dedicated and also, performer. like, they're way he, they're, he's wearing that that um, he's wearing that armor the entire film. Yeah, it's shot January, February, but like the average temperature around the the Amazon rainforest is like it in that area is like twenty five degrees or something. Mm. So it's going to be pretty horrible. Just madness. Absolute madness. There's a line in Klaus Kinski's book where he says, the, this is fucked up, but we'll get into Klaus Kinski in a, in a moment. So it's going to get way worse. And also, apparently, a lot of what Klaus Kinski came out with in his book, according to Werner Herzog, was absolute bullshit. Yeah, he made yeah. up a lot of stuff, but uh, there's a lot of negative things around Klaus Kinski. But <clears throat> he claimed that the the 16 year old girl who played his daughter in the film, she was like an actress, like a local actress that they used. And he said that like literally every single person there fucked her. What Klaus Kinski said that? Yeah, in his book, it's just like a throwaway line in his book. He's like, although we were all sick and bored, I think I think every single person fucked her. <laughs> I mean, it's just again i mean they're making a film in 1972 in uh peru you got this book in blockbuster yeah 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 sure i mean books are books are all available in blockbuster nowadays yeah i'm gonna have to track this down this sounds interesting as i say the entire film the entire book feel is one of the most sexually explicit things i can recall i can recall especially for being like someone's like autobiography or like, memoir he's or just whatever. going on about vaginas and bums and stuff the entire time yeah jesus christ well get again get into him a little bit because i think that's like uh that's an important thing his name was klaus gunter karl nazinski born in 1926 in the free city of danzig now gdansk his family moved to Berlin in 1931. During the Second World War, Kinski was conscripted at the age of 17 into the German Wehrmacht sometime in, uh, in 1943, and he served with the Luftwaffe as an elite paratrooper. He saw no action until the winter of 1944 when his unit was transferred to the Netherlands. He was captured by the British on his second day of combat, which he later claimed was a deliberate choice to desert. He'd been captured by the Germans, court-martialed as a deserter and sentenced to death, but he escaped and hid in the woods. A British patrol opened fired on him. He was wounded in the arm and they took him captive. After being treated for his injuries and interrogated, Kinski was transferred to a prisoner of war camp in Britain. The ship transporting him was torpedoed by a German U-boat, but arrived safely and he was held as a prisoner of war in Colchester. Hmm. These, a lot of this stuff... Who knows? I assume some of it is uh, like war record things have to be true to a certain extent, right? But 
I get the sense that Kinski was an absolute bullshit artist. Anyway, it was when he was uh, when he was in Colchester that he played his first roles on stage, taking part in variety shows intended to maintain morale among the prisoners. And by 1945, at the end of the war, uh, the German POWs were ready to go home. And uh, Kinski had heard that sick prisoners were to be returned first. So he tried to qualify by standing outside naked at night, drinking urine and eating cigarettes. But unfortunately for him, he remained healthy. And he was eventually returned to Germany in 1946 after spending a year and four months in captivity. When he arrived back in Berlin, he found out that his father had died during the war and his mother had been killed by an Allied air attack on the city. And that's when he became an actor, became a theatre actor. In 1955, he lived for three months in the same boarding house as a 13-year-old Werner Herzog. And uh, that's how he, yeah, he got to New Herzog then. But Kinski got into film acting and appeared in a large number of films in the 50s and 60s. He was in Dr. Zhivago. He was in For a Few Dollars More. Yeah, he was in a few other um, spaghetti westerns. He's he's like the lead in uh, The Great Silence, and he's also in uh, A Bullet for the General. I mean, he had a great face for that. He, Of course, he did yeah. five films with Herzog, and they threatened to kill each other frequently, mostly Herzog threatening to kill Kinski, I think. In 1980, Kinski refused the lead role of uh, Major, Arno- Major Arnold Tott in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, telling director oh. Steven Spielberg, this script is a yawn-making, boring pile of shit <laughs> and moronically <laughs> shitty. <laughs> I mean, if Herzog was like, you know, enough of a fan uh, to be asking Kinski, I'm sure that in a way that made his day. Spielberg, you mean? Yeah. And then he didn't have to work with him. So win win. Yeah. You kind of have to respect. I mean, obviously, everyone loves Raiders of the Lost Ark, but you kind of have to respect Klaus Kinski for that. Totally. For for having that, for holding that opinion. Unfortunately, things are about to get very Jared Depardieu now. Uh, In 2013, more than 20 years after her father's death, Paula Kinski published an autobiography titled Kinder Mund, in which she claimed her father had sexually abused her from age 5 to 19. And his other daughter, too, right? Yeah, his other other daughter, Nastasha, basically said, yes, he embraced her in a sexual manner when she was a kid, but never had sex with her, but... They both, they, she expressed support for her, for her half-sister saying like, yeah, her dad was a tyrant, an unpredictable tyrant. He was also, uh, I think he was deemed mentally ill in the 1950s. He was in sure. um, some mental facility. He attempted suicide a number of times as well back then. He eventually died uh, 23rd of November 1991 of a sudden heart attack in California, age 65. Only his son attended the funeral, his son Nikolai. And that's who his memoir is dedicated to. A complicated character. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, uh, I mean, he's like, uh, what's the name of the fella? Timothy Carey or one of those fellas. Yeah, but Timothy Carey was a good guy by all accounts. No, but I don't mean like... <clears throat> yeah, he he had, he was like a real character. I know what you mean. Yeah, a character like, yeah. actor. A character actor with a face. A guy you could you could bring in and he'll do something mad. Yeah, I suppose like it just goes to show that um, yeah, you can't fake a madness like uh, fucking Kinski seems to have on his weird face. At least Timothy Carey was not getting and was not doing all manner of bad shit. He was yeah. just being hard to work with. But this, he he, he, is he the said, cast but he said Raider of the Lost Stars was moronically moronically yeah. shitty. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, but that's it. It's all. But this film's all about Klaus Kinski. There's nothing else to say about any of the cast members. Yeah, and, well, I mean, could you describe the plot? 
1560, several scores of Spanish conquistadors and a hundred native slaves marched down from the newly conquered Inca Empire in the Andes Mountains into the jungles of the east in search of the fabled country of El Dorado. Under the command of Gonzalo Pizarro, Alejandro Ripuyes, the men clad in half-armour pull cannons down narrow mountain paths and through dense, muddy jungle. On New Year's Eve, reaching the end of his supplies and unable to go on without more information, Pizarro orders a group of 40 men to scout ahead by raft downriver. If they do not return to the main party within one week with news of what lies beyond, they will be considered lost. Yeah. So yeah, so Pizarro sends this group down to, to find supplies, basically. Oh yeah, and uh, sure, they're, they're sent off with a fat body. They got a fat yeah, body. so Pizarro chooses Don Pedro de Ursua, played by Rui Guerra, as the commander of the expedition. Uh, Rui Guerra, a uh, Brazilian actor. The only really interesting, uh, the main interesting thing about him was his wife, Leila Diniz. She died in uh, 1972, one year after they got married. They had a daughter. She was 27 years old, Leila Diniz. She's a Brazilian uh, model and actress. Uh, she died in a plane crash of uh, JAL 471 in India. There you go. Oh, can't, poor you can't lady. Be, you can't be a plane crash, yeah. So she's, uh, she unfortunately died very young. Poor uh, Rui Guerra. Rui Guerra, he uh, was playing the role of Don Pedro de Ursua, commander of the expedition. Then there was also Don Lope de Aguirre, Klaus Kinski as his second in command. Fat nobleman Don Fernando de Guzman, played by Peter Berling, to represent the House of Spain. And brother Gaspar de Carvajal, played by the painter Del Negro, huh. uh, to bring the word of God. Also accompanying the exhibition against Pizarro's better judgment are Ursua's, Ursua's mistress, Doña Ines, played by... Helena Rojo, and uh, Aguirre's teenage daughter, Flores, played by Cecilia Rivera in her only film role. We can maybe guess why that was. <laughs> Travelling through rapids, one of the four rafts gets caught in an eddy, and the others are unable to help free it. Yeah, even that little sequence is... I don't know, it's just... It, like, I, I remember it, it, like uh, even seeing that the first time, just just being a little bit spooked by that. Cause it's well, like, no, you could just... You're just your trap. I mean, that river looks so wild. It looks yeah, dangerous yeah. for the actors. It looks really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, to shoot. It le- like that's what I mean. It and must per- have been super dangerous to shoot. Must have been very scary. Yeah, yeah. And you just get the sense that those people, like those guys on the raft, are just trapped there forever, basically. Yeah, they're never going to get free. But that night, gunfire erupts on the trapped trapped raft. In the morning, the men on board are found dead, with two missing. Two of the the Indians are missing. Ursua wants the bodies to be brought back to camp for proper burial. Knowing this would slow down the expedition, Aguirre suggests that Peruccio fire the cannon to clean the rust from it. He fires it at the raft, destroying it and throwing the bodies into the river. I think that was a good move. I respect that move. Yes, indeed. Can't be slowing down with burials out there. During the night, the remaining rafts are swept away by the rising river. Time has run out for the scouting mission and Ursua decides to return to Pizarro's group despite the danger from hostile Indians. Aguirre leads a mutiny against Ursua, mm. telling the men that untold riches await them ahead and reminding them that Hernán Cortés won an empire in Mexico by disobeying orders. Speaking of things that are much better than 1492, that Hernán Cortés show that I watched last year on Mexican HBO, I would heartily recommend that if you're looking for a similar story done much better over the course of like eight episodes. And that's Javier Bardem, right? No, it's... um. What's his name from Rambo 5? <laughs> I can't think of his name. He's a, a Barcelona-born... I want to say he's a Barcelona-born actor. 
What's his uh, name again? Kyle whatever, Fernando, we'll figure him. Anyway, check out Hernan Cortez, or Hernan it's called. Uh, Ursua orders Aguirre arrested, but he and a soldier loyal to him are shot. Aguirre nominates Guzman as the new leader of the expedition and rebels against the Spanish crown, proclaiming Guzman the emperor of El Dorado. Yeah, so they make the fat baddie the leader. That's always a wise choice. You want to be number two. You don't want to put yourself on the firing line. You get fatty in there. Mm. I wonder if the Lost City of Zed took the fat baddie from this. Maybe. They're, yeah, there they're was not, just they're a lot not... of fat baddies going around. I mean, fat baddie is always just a great little insert in your movie if you're going to be lost in the wilderness. It's a good name for a band, Fat Baddie. Yes, it would be a good name for a band. quality. Feel free to use that, anyone. A farcical trial of Ursua results in his being sentenced to death, but Guzman surprises Aguirre by granting Ursua clemency. That's why you don't install a puppet, a fat puppet, as as emperor, because they go against you. Aguirre Mm -hmm. remains the true leader of the mutiny, so oppressive and terrifying, terrifying that few protest his leadership. Only Inez has the courage to speak out against him. Knowing that some of the soldiers are still loyal to Ursua, Aguirre simply ignores her. Nice. The expedition continues on a single newly built large raft. Oh, I like the raft. Yeah, the, this part is where it's just like you start to feel the heat and the madness. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was very. That's, I think this it's is the best where the sequence film, of the film. Yeah, I think this is where the film really kicks into gear. I think from here onwards to the rest of the film, you're like, okay, there's a clear idea of where it's going, what's mm. happening. It all makes sense. An indigenous couple approaching peacefully by canoe are captured by the explorers. And when the man expresses confusion when presented with a Bible, Brother Carvajal kills him for blasphemy. He, yeah, he's confused because they say, he say, he's told it's the word of God. And, and he, he puts up to, to his ear. He says, it's not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... So they fucking bash him to death. Him for making a, a sick joke. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. For being, He's too funny. He's, uh, that's it. He got cancelled pretty quick there. He's the original, uh, what's his name? Fuck, I can't think of. 50s comedian. Died of the heroin overdose. What's he called? Uh, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce. The original Lenny Bruce there getting cancelled for his blasphemy. (laughs) Guzman dines on the low food supplies while the men starve. Guzman goes full fat baddie. He has some beautiful meals and... There's those nice shots of him digging into his, like, he's, he's moaning, going like, what, there's no salt? And he's eating all his fruit, and then you see behind him, there's, like, guys are counting out the last little flakes of corn. Yeah, and then Proper when he abandons body. some stuff, they just scramble over and eat all his scraps. Yeah, everyone does, even the, the monk guy as well, like, everyone is getting involved. And then, he, oh yeah, then he kicks the horse off the raft. That's next, yeah. They, they he, <laughs> he has the expedition's only remaining horse pushed off the raft because it annoys him. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's top tier fat baddie. I love that. <laughs> that shot of them sailing away from the horse. The horse is just stood yeah, there. Yeah, the that's very Werner Herzog, that kind up. of thing. Yeah, that's a great shot. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, it's around this time where they see... Oh, we'll get to it, I'm sure, if you're reading Well, next up is, uh, soon afterwards, uh, Guzman is found dead near the raft's privy. And after Guzman's death, Aguirre proclaims himself leader. Ursua is then taken ashore and hanged in the jungle. And then the group attacks an indigenous village where several soldiers are killed by spears and arrows. The distraught Ines walks into the jungle and disappears. Very cool. Also mad. And then on the raft again, the group of slowly starving, feverish men begin disbelieving everything they see, even when shot with arrows. Mm. That's uh, the black slave that they have. They they 
force him out into like they force previously when they're at that village they force him to go out first because they know that the natives are scared when they see this african man but he's based on a real guy who led the zanzibar revolution what yeah his name was john okello i think he the- was a slave in zanzibar in the 19 19- like his character is based on a guy in the 1960s huh who was a slave who was a key Per, a key player in the Zanzibar revolution. And the character in this is based on him. Yeah. Seems like a stretch. I think it has this, well, it's his Herzog. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The Zanzibar revolution is what forced uh, Freddie Mercury's family to move to the UK. Ah, well, thank God for that then. Yeah. He killed Freddie Mercury, that did. Well, yeah, it did kill him too, but. Yeah, it's not good. Didn't yeah, maybe he it, wouldn't have even been gay if it wasn't for the Zanzibar Revolution. <laughs> that's, well, that's what they say. <laughs> that's what's the main historical point of the Zanzibar Revolution. It made Barry Bolsara gay. That's a fact. <laughs> Gave him all these ideas. Uh, and a Gary Yeah, the group stares in disbelief at a, a wooden ship perched yeah, on the highest branches cool. of a tall tree. How did they do that? They put it up the tree, as far as I know. I've read about that before. Fucking insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's is just... long before CGI or anything, so... And that looks like a real boat and a tree. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Aguirre orders for the boat to be brought down and refurbished, but Brother Carvajal refuses. In a series of final attacks by unseen assailants, the remaining survivors, including Aguirre's daughter, are killed by arrows. Monkeys overrun the raft. Those monkeys are the, they're great. I want Yeah, they are. Yeah. There's so many of them. Herzog uh, claimed he was bitten about 50 times. Yeah, I've heard that too. filming of that scene. And I think I'm guessing Kinski got bitten heavily as well. Monkeys overrun the raft as Aguirre imagines, imagines conquering all of America and founding an incestuous dynasty to rule over it. He wanted to, to, to marry his daughter to have a pure relationship. Yes. Which and um, a lot of that they were there's hints of uh, Hitler stuff there that that's what they're 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 hinting at apparently. Oh really? Yeah, I just read I just in a little background of uh, some of the conversations around that is that it was supposed to be. Yeah, it would make sense, of, I suppose. Taking a shot at the Führer, taking pot shots at the Führer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what they said: speak ill of the dead. Yeah, but uh, all right. Yeah, the monkeys. Those monkeys were cool. It was all those, pretty those, cool. Those, those monkeys, and that's one of those things again, like a horse on a raft, pushing a horse off of a raft, getting like 200 monkeys from the jungle and sticking them on a raft. I'm pretty sure you can't do any of these things anymore. No. This was, you, that's some real 1972 South America shagging a 16-year-old type things. Yeah. No one's doing that anymore. Well, I mean, the embrace no of the serpent has doing the feel that of that. True. That's true. Do they kill any animals in Embrace of the Serpent? Can't remember. I'm going to say if they did, it would have been within the uh, laws and limits set for tribal activity in the area or whatever, not just some random Germans. Anyway, I did enjoy the film. I will check out some. I've been meaning to watch Nosferatu and a bunch of other, and Fitzcarraldo's been on the list forever, so I'll eventually get around to those two. And if I, I might also recommend, it's a documentary of his, but I also really enjoy it. It's called uh, Encounters at the End of the World, where he just What's goes. That one he goes down to Antarctica and just interviews people who live in Antarctica. Just basically, the the pitch line for the movie is, "What kind of weirdos do be living in Antarctica?" Nice. 
Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's fun. Uh, also, um, in 1971, when uh, Werner Herzog was lo- was uh, location scouting for the film, he was supposed to be on Lanza Flight 508, but canceled, and he changed uh, he changed his ticket at the last moment. But that's the one that got struck by lightning, and the little girl survived. Was the only survivor of which, then he made a film about in 1999, Wings of Hope. I mean, all of that rings a bell definitely when reading about Her- Herzog years ago. That he was supposed to be on that flight. Yeah scouting for this film. And how did she survive? She fell through like a canopy of trees. She, I think she might be like, is she not the person, is she not the person who's survived from the great, from the, like the greatest height ever of like just free fall without any parachute or anything like 30,000 feet or something. Shit enough thing to be famous for, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I think she was just, I think she fell into like the canopy of trees below. And uh, and that's what saved her. But yeah, her story's mental. The plane was struck by lightning and disintegrated. That's God damn, that sounds terrifying. Good. Yeah, Julianne Kopke. So I'll have to watch Wings of Hope. It's Wings of Hope at some point as well. Indeed, yeah. Is Wings of Hope a movie or a documentary? It's, I'm going to say it's a documentary. There's yeah, no there's no way to check that. So I'll just have to say it's a documentary. <laughs> Wings of Hope is the film explores. It's a 49-minute-long film. Yeah, I'd still be interested in watching that. And it is a documentary in the film Herzog and Kupke visit the scenes of her flight crash and escape from the jungle. Feels, sounds very sort of a uh, little detour. Yeah. Anyway, fuck it. Enough. 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 We're done. Boy, I still have things to do before I have things to do tomorrow. Do you have a coin? Um, I do, yeah. I've got a nice two-euro coin here. All right. I'll take the two. Okay, um, so we should probably explain what these things are. Yes, indeed. Uh, you want to go? Sure. I For this one, I was reading a lot of... Again, I went down these insane Wikipedia things. I think the, some of the Ottoman Empire... I was reading a lot about the Ottoman Empire, which got me reading about the First World War and the film... Gallipoli by Peter Weir mm. and then I was looking at some of Peter Weir's filmography and that took me to Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm going to say Picnic at Hanging Rock. I have seen that not in a long time but I remember really enjoying it. I am putting forward I've been listening to an awful lot of uh, podcasts celebrating horror films and people keep bringing up David Cronenberg's 1979 psychological, psychological body horror film uh, The Brood. So yeah, want to give that a go. Okay, so two horror films. Give me the two. Two you want, okay. I'm sorry to tell you, but it is head. It is not two. Okay. You lose. Oh, well, I guess I'll never watch that. What might I have won? Yeah, you would have, well, so I was going to pair it up with another Cronenberg. I have a lot of gaps in my Cronenberg viewing, but I was going to go for Eastern Promises just because I want to see it. Fair enough. I'm going to go for something just to completely just axe 1492 from my memory. It's the greatest film set at sea ever. Master uh, and Commander. Uh, we're going to watch Master and Commander. The yeah, first yeah, yeah, of the yeah. World. I haven't seen it for ages. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I have. Yeah. <laughs> I may have just seen it. Oh, yeah, I saw it last year in the cinema. But um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of this film. Any time to watch it again, I'm game. Okay. All right, sweet. Well, uh, nice. I guess that's it for this week. Uh who knows what the next uh, new film we'll be watching, but I'm sure we'll figure out. I think one we out. should go for everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes, everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm definitely up for that. That looks pretty cool. Nice. And I still have next to no idea what it's about. Multiverse. Oh, no. 
if I just spoiled it. All right. See you in the multiverse. <laughs> but supposedly it's good. Bye. Bye.